A central theme to the book of Isaiah is that God is working all things for his glory, especially as it pertains to his covenant people, the nation of Israel, in the midst of living among the nations. And in Isaiah, we see this theme that God is guiding all of human history for the purpose of his plan of redemption. And in Isaiah chapter 46, uh, the writer here preaching the word of God, God calls the people to look at the worthless idols of the nations, consider their worthlessness, and calls them to turn and submit to his perfect will and ways among the nations. In Isaiah 46 verse 8, it says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose." Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Uh, This chapter that we've come to this morning in Genesis, chapter 10, is one of the least studied books or chapters in all of the book of Genesis. The amount of ink that has been spilt on this particular chapter and exegesis among commentators is sparse compared to the other 49 books. And at first glance, chapter 10 seems quite bland. However, I would argue this chapter that we are going to look at this morning is crucial to how we understand God. And who he is and how he operates in relation to humanity, image bearers. In chapter 10, we are introduced for the first time in the book of Genesis and all of Scripture to a fundamental theme of the entirety of the Bible and even into eternity to come. And that is this, God is sovereign over the nations. He is the one true living God, and he will accomplish his will among the peoples of the earth. Would you stand with me this morning as we read Genesis chapter 10 together in honor of God's word? Beginning in verse 1, it says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Mashik, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togormah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Sabteca, the sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan, 
Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From the land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Natuhim, Pathrusim, Kaluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heath, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask in these moments that you would help us to understand your word rightly and clearly, that you would call us, Lord, to the right application of this text, that we would go from this place this morning with a heart for the nations, your heart, that we would be broken for the lostness that surrounds us, and we would be bold gospel heralds in this dark and dying world. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to do two things this morning. I want us first to understand the content of Genesis chapter 10, and then I want us to apply it uh, to our lives and how we understand the the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, uh, redemption, and restoration, and also how we apply it to our lives and how we live as Christians. So first, I want us to consider the content of chapter 10. Uh, Here in chapter 10, we look back to this covenant-making God, and we see the fulfillment of this blessing, this command that we've seen time and time again, that we saw last week in verse 1 of chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah and his sons come out of the ark, and they are doing just that. They are filling the earth with descendants. Here in chapter 10, we also look forward to a divine judgment that is going to come in chapter 11 next week at the Tower of Babel where men desire to make a name for themselves and and God distorts the languages among them and scatters them throughout the earth. 
Chapter 10 is the beginning of a transition from the primeval events before it, namely creation, the command that is given there in the garden, the fall, the curse, the outworking of the curse in Cain and Abel and the descendants of, uh, of Cain and Seth and wickedness filling the earth and the, the judgment of God in the flood, but also the great mercy and grace of God to keep a remnant for himself. And now the story then will turn to what we know as the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. Just to give you a heads up, next week we'll be in chapter 11, uh, and then we will take a break beginning on Easter Sunday as we begin a study in First and Second Thessalonians. And after we finish that, we will come to chapter 12 where we are introduced to the first father, Abram. And so we've come to a turning point in the story. The, the first portion of Genesis is coming to a conclusion, and then we will see uh, the latter part of Genesis coming in chapter 12. And from this chapter, moving forward in the book of Genesis, we will continue to see the themes of blessing and cursing. We will see covenant making. We will continue to see a dysfunctional family. We will see a faithful God. We will see sin and judgment, but we will most assuredly see the mercy and grace of God. And all of this, this story of Genesis, is happening among people divided by tongues and regions and politics. But primarily, the story that will unfold before us in Genesis is happening among a chosen nation, a chosen people. You see, nations are crucial to the story of redemption. Nations and peoples and tribes and tongues are crucial to the promise of the seed to come. Nations are crucial to how we know this covenant-making God. And so chapter 10 is the story of the birth of nations. There are two major types of genealogies that we see in Scripture. First is linear genealogies, and second is segmented genealogies. Linear genealogies are uh, the genealogies that we tend to think of that trace a line from one particular ancestor. In fact, we've already seen a linear genealogy in chapter 5 when we see the descendants of Adam through Seth. Uh, next week, we'll see another one of these in the, in the last half of Genesis chapter 11. These function to link the names of, of the ancestors that have come before and will come after certain people. Uh, the second type of genealogy we see in Scripture is the segmented genealogy that emphasizes more than one line. This type of genealogy is more varied in its function. It can show changes in society. It can show alliances among peoples and tribes and nations. And the genealogy that we see here in Genesis 10 is most certainly a segmented genealogy. What you find here as we read chapter 10 is not just individual people, but it's tracking uh, tribes and relationships and kinships. Showing that people are divided by language and territory and cultures and traditions and, and different systems of living. And all of this is to serve the purpose of God's sovereign design to bless the nations and bring glory to his name alone. 
As you look at chapter 10, we see uh, these nations flowing from three particular boys, the sons of Noah that we are very familiar with at this point, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So verse 2, we see the sons of Japheth. Verse 6, the sons of Ham. Verse 22, the sons of Shem. And in this genealogy, we do indeed see some individual people. We see the three boys. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We also see Nimrod mentioned in verse 8. We see Peleg mentioned in verse 25. But predominantly and primarily what we see here is not names of individuals, but names of tribes. We see here these what are called clans. This word literally means peoples or tribes. And in the original language, these are presented as plural nouns, representing not just one person, but groups of people that are flowing out of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so we see names like Kittim and Dodanim and Mizraim. We also see a list of the Ites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Archites, all depicting different tribes in specific locations. We don't just see tribes mentioned here in chapter 10, though. We also see places. Some of these places are familiar to us in the story of the Old Testament, Babylon, Nineveh, if you know the story of Jonah, is important, but we also see places that we've really never heard of before, never really will again, like Eric and Akkad. We see a a city here in Sidon that uh, represents the city of Phoenicia. Magog is mentioned in other parts of Scripture as the land of Gog. Places like Tarshish and Havilah are known as biblical locations, and so we see individuals, we see tribes, and we see regions. And again, we're reminded here in Genesis that this is not fable. This is not a made-up story. These are actual peoples and nations and tribes and tongues that existed in the world, and we still see their descendants represented in the world that we live in today. And so you see several times in the passage, verse 5, verse 20, and then again in verse 31, that these are the clans, the languages, the lands, and their nations. Something else that helps us understand what the writer is doing here in Genesis 10 is two uh, phrases that are used throughout the genealogy. When we looked at Genesis chapter 5, we talked about the importance of the pattern of genealogies. Here, the pattern rests on two phrases, sons of, which you see in verse 2, the sons of Japheth, and also you see the word there, fathered, verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon. Your translation might say brought forth or begot. Both of these phrases uh, can and are used in the Old Testament to speak literally of one particular son or, or one who is fathered from another. But here, these phrases are used more figuratively to speak to cities and regions and tribes, groups of people. Uh, This is common in the ancient world for uh, this type of language to be used to speak of cities and nations and people being born out of others. And in this, we find a picture of developing nations from a common origin. All of these came from the same man, Noah, the one who God kept in the ark. The one who was justified by faith and was sanctified through the flood and glorified on the mountain as he exited the ark there with his family. And so far in the story of Genesis, the emphasis has been on individuals, particular people. But now, for the first time in Scripture, we see the importance of tribes and tongues 
and nations. At this transitional point in the book of Genesis, we see that God has a concern for the nations. He has a heart for the nations, but primarily he has a concern for his glory manifesting itself among the nations. So what do we do with chapter 10 then? How do we apply this to our understanding of the story of the Bible and to our lives? Well, three things. First, God works in and through these tribes, cities, inhabitants, countries, and individuals to bring about his plan of redemption. God uses the nations to bring about his plan of redemption. We see this throughout the Bible. Two particular verses that come to mind for me is firstly Proverbs 21.1, which says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereignly and providentially working among every tribe and tongue and nation and kingdom of this world in these very moments to bring about his perfect will. He has always done that and he always will in the history of the world. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Even the wicked evil kings that exist in our day have been placed there by the sovereign, good, gracious hand of creator God. This is profound. This is earth-shattering in how we consider who God is and what he has done and what he continues to do throughout the history of humanity. The nations play a key role in this story of redemption and restoration. We see God using the nations as instruments of his blessing and cursing. We see the nations as recipients of God's blessing and cursing. But something very important that we must understand that there is then secondly one nation in particular who will be the source of this blessing. The descendants of Abram. That God chooses a particular nation to bless and who, who through whom he will bless all of the nations. That the line of promise comes from one particular tribe little bit of a spoiler alert. We're going to jump ahead to chapter 12, verse 1, and consider the covenant that God makes with Abram. And I want you to notice the implications that this has not just on the nation that will come from Abram, but on the nations throughout the world. Chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will Make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this covenant promise that God makes with Abram, he promises him a nation that will come from him, that will be great. Their number will fill the earth as the sand fills the seashore. That this nation will be blessed by God and that all the nations, all the families, all the tribes and people of the earth will be blessed 
through his descendants, namely the one, the seed, the promised one who would come, Christ himself, who would come and crush the head of the serpent once and for all at the cross, showing victory over sin and death by rising from the grave. And lest we think that God's desire to manifest his glory among the nations is only a New Testament theme, I want us to consider that we see this throughout the Old Testament. You fast forward to the book of Joshua, and Joshua and his, his men are about to enter into uh, the promised land. They cross over the Jordan, and they come to their first obstacle, which is Jericho, and they send spies into Jericho, and the, Jer- the, the spies there in Jericho run into this, this Gentile prostitute named Rahab, and she brings them in, and listen to what she says of the Lord in Joshua chapter 2, verse, verses 8 uh, through verse 13, she says, before, it says there, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, listen to what this Gentile prostitute has to say. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath." Later, it tells us that she was, Rahab was brought into the fold of the covenant people of Israel. We then see the, the story of Ruth, this Gentile widow who is brought into the fold of the covenant people of God through this one, her kindred redeemer who brings her in. And both of these Gentile women, one a prostitute, one a widow, are mentioned in the lineage of Christ in Matthew. We go then to 1 Kings where Solomon builds the temple. And in his prayer over the temple in chapter 8, he has something profound to say about the nations. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, listen to what Solomon says in regards to the temple and the nations. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. If you were here on Wednesday night in our our prayer meeting, we looked at Psalm 87. And in Psalm 87, verse 4, we see these nations mentioned. It says, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. These are not just nations. These are the enemies of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And they are promised an inheritance in Zion. We see in The book of Ezekiel, time and time and time again, the writer communicating how God is sanctifying the nation of Israel for himself. And over and over and over and over again in Ezekiel's book, it says, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. 
God revealing himself to the nations is not just a New Testament truth. It is a Bible truth. God has a heart for the nations. The final point of application then is every nation and tribe will be represented around the throne. The end goal of this is the throne of God. Where every tribe and tongue will gather around him for all of eternity and bless his name. Psalm 86.9 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And so we go from the first book of the Bible in Genesis and we turn then to Revelation chapter 7 where we see this picture of the throne and the writer communicating about this vision that he sees there and what he sees gathered around the throne. And in chapter 7, verse 9 of Revelation, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the mystery of the gospel that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, the nations, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And if you remember when we walked through our sermon series on church unity, we looked earlier in chapter 2 where it talks of the dividing wall of hostility that is broken down between the Jew and the Gentile. The mystery of the gospel is that the gospel, that salvation is for people from every tribe and tongue throughout the earth. Our purpose as the church, then, is to bring about God's kingdom among the nations. We have a God-ordained part in this endeavor as the church. And so in Matthew 28, when Christ gives his great commission, his great charge, his great command to the church, and he says there, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In his final words, his final charge to his people, his disciples, before he ascends into heaven, we see a view of the nations. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, Paul says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In order for people to come to faith in Christ, they must first hear the gospel proclaimed from the lips of men 
and women. And for those who live on this earth right now who have yet to have a chance to hear the gospel, the reality of Scripture this morning is if they die and pass from this life into the next, without a saving faith in Jesus Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. Right now, as we gather in this place, there are some three billion unreached people in this world. And you say, what does that mean? Let me help unpack that for a moment. Three billion, we can't even fathom that. Unreached people groups are people who live among tribes and and nations where uh, among their tribe, less than 2% of them are are evangelical or are believers or followers of Jesus. And the reason for this is because of different barriers, whether it be political or, or religious or maybe they live in a remote part of the world. They have little to no access to the gospel. So right now, again, as we sit here, there are 3 billion people who live on planet Earth who will be born, will live an entire lifetime and die and not once hear that Jesus saves. No access to the Bible, no access to the gospel, no access to websites or internet pages or or podcasts that proclaim the gospel. They will live and die and never once hear that Jesus saves. And we go to the nations not just because of of sympathy, but we go primarily because Christ has commanded us to. But as we go, we have in mind the plight of those who will live and pass from this life into the next, even if they do never, never have a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus. If they don't have that chance, they will die and spend an eternity in hell. Three billion people right now. And so the closing application for us this morning is threefold. First, that we would be people who pray for the nations. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus says there, he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is not a recommendation or a suggestion. This is a command from Christ that we as his people would pray earnestly. And he tells us to what end? For the harvest. That God would send out laborers into the harvest. That it is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It is good and right and joyful for us as the people of God to regularly, to daily pray for and on behalf of the nations. That God would send gospel workers to those who have yet to hear so that some may come to faith in Christ. It is good and right and pleasing for us to pray to this end. And so as an individual, as families, as a church, may we pray for the nations that the gospel would be proclaimed among them rightly and that people would come to faith in Christ from every tribe and tongue. May we be people who pray for the nations. The second point of application then is that we would give for the sake of the nations or for missions. One of the great privileges of being a Southern Baptist church is we know as we give in our tithes and our offerings to this place that we're not just giving to keep the lights on but that we are literally giving so that the gospel would advance to the ends of the earth and right now as we give as 
Calvary Hills Baptist Church, we are going to support some 4,000 missionaries who are living in the darkest, hardest to reach places in the world to bring the gospel to those who have yet to hear. And so as you give your tithe to this church, do so with that in mind, that you are giving so that the gospel might be advanced to the ends of the earth. So we pray and we give, but thirdly, we must be a people who go. Now, not everyone is called to go. I would argue that each of us are responsible to pray and to give. But I want to challenge you to consider whether or not you should go this morning. Uh, This afternoon at 1230, we're going to have a luncheon here in the small fellowship hall to talk about an opportunity that our church has to go to Laredo in the coming months and share Christ with those who have yet to hear This coming evening, tonight at 6.30, Pastor Raid, who's an Arabic pastor here in San Antonio, is coming to share about his work and his ministry. We have an opportunity to listen and also give to his ministry as we look to reach the nations that have come here and reside in San Antonio. Things that we consider in going, but I want you to primarily consider this. Unfortunately, when we look at the the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, uh, preachers and, and, and teachers will often say that the command of the Great Command is go. That is not the command of the Great Commission. The word go is a participle that's connected to the command. The one command of the Great Commission is verse 19, make disciples. The idea of the word go is as you go. So every believer is responsible to be a herald of the gospel as you go. As you walk through this life in your place of work, in Walmart, the grocery store, wherever you are, that we are a people that the gospel is on our lips. But there is most definitely a sense of going in the command because it says to make disciples of what? All nations and we praise God that in our day the the day that we live in that he's brought the nations to us again let's support Pastor Raid and his ministry to reach Arabic speaking people who live here in San Antonio but here's my primary charge today will you go to the ends of the earth and give your life for the sake of the gospel among the unreached. If not you, then who? Who will go if not you? I've been on the other side of the world and I've seen the Mormons are there, the Jehovah's Witnesses are there, the prosperity gospel preachers are everywhere. If not you, then who will go? To those who have yet to hear, who will obey the command of our master and make disciples of the nations? If not you, then who? Maybe you are a junior or senior in high school and you're considering what to do when you graduate from high school and the pressure from your parents and the world is go to college and get a job. 
And I might upset a few parents this morning in saying this, but maybe you consider, young person, giving your first two years out of college to going to the ends of the earth and preaching Christ to those who have yet to hear. Would you consider that, young person? Maybe you're a young family and your career is established and you would never even begin to fathom uprooting yourself from this American dream and the comfort of this place and going and living among a foreign land and speaking a foreign tongue. But if not you, then who? Who will obey the great command? I want to encourage you, young family, to consider, is God calling you to go to the ends of the earth to give your life for the sake of those who have yet to hear? Finally, retirees, if you think you're off the hook, I want to challenge you as well. You've worked hard all of your days. You've come to a point in life where, praise God, you have a chance to just rest and invest in the grandkids and spend time in your hobbies. Would you consider giving the rest of your days to people who have yet to hear the gospel? Would you spend your golden years, your retirement years, living in a strange, stinky place so that people might hear the hope of glory that is in Christ Jesus? If not you, then who will go? Who will go to the nations? We began in Isaiah. I want to end in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision in the throne room of God. And there the Lord says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. Is God calling you to go to the nations this morning? I believe that each of us have a responsibility, though, to view this world and this life through the lens of the nations. And so the challenge for each of us is what are we doing for the sake of God's glory among the nations? Dear friend, pray fervently for the nations. Dear friend, give joyfully for the sake of the nations. And then would you consider giving your life in a foreign land to those who have yet to hear? Let's pray.